Well, greetings and salutations, everybody. Welcome to my YouTube channel. My name is John Campia, and this is a companion video. What are companion videos? Well, I'm awfully glad that you asked. See, every day on the John Campia Show, Monday through Friday, we take the second half of the show to take your live questions. However, we normally don't have enough time to get around to all the live questions that get sent in. And frankly, the other day, YouTube's live streaming function crapped out and we were, had to cut our show like really short. And so we've gotten really backed up with your questions that you guys sent in. But I want to make sure you guys don't have to wait too long to get those questions answered. So we gather them up and we address them here on companion videos. Now, for those of you who happen to be watching this live, and we are doing this live at almost midnight on uh, on Wednesday evening, Wednesday the 21st. It's, it's almost midnight right now. Uh, why am I doing a live stream so late? Well, here's the thing. I told you guys on the show today that I would be doing a companion video today. And then my day got completely out of hand. I won't go into everything that came up. It's Everything's good. Everything's good. Don't get me wrong. Everything's good. But my day got absolutely bonkers nuts with a lot of things I had to address and take care of. But you know, then it got to be really late. It's like, I don't care how late it is. I said I was going to do a companion video today. So let's do a companion video today. And it's good to see all of you guys here. I gave you guys like two minutes notice. And uh, before we started this, and there's like 50 of you in the live chat already, good to have you guys here. So I will uh, take a peek at the live chat there once in a while while we're doing the live stream. Good to have all you guys here. Hello to Eduardo, uh, Michael, Joey, uh, Jonas, uh, Ethan's, uh, and Narcisco3, and everybody else who's in the live chat. Good to have you guys here. So let's not waste any time and get to the questions that you guys have been sending in for us to address. So we're going to get things started off here. With Thomas Patterson, who writes, In all fairness to Black Widow, Spider-Man Homecoming and Ant-Man 2 opened on the same weekend after the 4th in 2017 and 2018, respectively, and they also dropped 62% in their second weekend. While Disney Plus didn't help, a 67% drop isn't widely out of step. It is absolutely widely out of step. It is absolutely widely out of step. Listen, small percentage points when addressing and talking about the week to week, weekend to weekend drops are massive. There's a reason why everybody says like 50 to 60% drop is totally within the range of totally being acceptable. But once your movie drops more than 60%, it becomes a little bit concerning unless there's some big extenuating circumstances. The weekend that it happened on is not one of those extenuating circumstances. The fact of the matter is, even those two hand-picked movies you picked out, they dropped like 5% less than Black Widow dropped. 5% less than Black Widow dropped. You know, and Ant-Man 2, a movie which I like quite a bit, not nearly as much as the first Ant-Man, but that was a movie that didn't get all that well received, and it still only dropped like 62%. Whereas Black Widow was, it's got big critic ratings and even bigger audience ratings. The audience ratings are in the 90 percentile. So that's pretty big. So yes, 5% difference is the difference between being in a totally reasonable thing and being quite worrisome. So, yeah, I, I would actually say it is kind of a significant difference. It is. By the way, uh, Joey Blue Jay sends in a super chat badge in the live chat. Thank you, Joey Blue Jay. Appreciate that, man. All right, let's move on here. Next up is also Thomas Patterson writes, I mean, Spider-Man Homecoming and Ant-Man 2 both recovered somewhat and had great legs. So Spider-Man and Ant-Man ended up earning $334 million and $217 domestically, uh, million respectively. But I think the real challenge for Black Widow, like those films, is going to be the third week. I would agree. Now, first of all, look, you cannot downplay the significance of it taking over a 67% drop. You can't downplay it. That's a huge thing. It is the biggest drop any MCU movie has ever had, beating the previous biggest drop by over 5%. You can't, un you can't just sweep that under the rug. That being said, that massive failure can be mitigated by having some legs. But with, I don't know, with the Disney Premier Access strategy, I think they've cut their legs off. So it's going to be interesting to see. It's going to be interesting to see what, you know, how well Black Widow does in its third week. And I agree with you there. I think that's going to be very, very pivotal. But, you know, you've got Snake Eyes opening this weekend. I've got my tickets to go see it at the Riverside AMC tomorrow. So I'm looking forward to that. You've got uh, Old Opening, which I think looks pretty damn good, to be honest with you. 
And I can't remember the last time I said that about an M. Night Shamhammer movie, but I'm I'm actually pretty excited about seeing old. So we'll see how it goes. But you're right. The third weekend is going to be pivotal. We'll see what kind of legs it has. But honestly, I think Disney cut their legs out. So I don't know. Hopefully, fingers crossed, you'll be right. And uh, and I'll my worry will be for not. So we'll have to wait and see. All right. Thanks, Thomas. Next up, Sir Lance in Pants writes. Uh, hey, John and Rob. Uh, Rob's obviously not here right now. Long-time viewer, first-time commenter. Well, thank you for writing in, Sir Lance. Uh, one of my all-time favorite sci-fis is the 2007 Danny Boyle film Sunshine. Unfortunately, I know very few people who have actually seen it. Curious if you have, and if so, what are your thoughts? Yeah, if we're talking, if it's the, the right movie uh, with, uh, why am I freezing on the name of Scarecrow? Um, uh, Killian Murphy. Yeah. Killian Murphy. Um, if we're talking about the one with Killian Murphy, then yes, where they, you know, the whole mission is they, they have a mission. They have to go and restart the sun and then they kind of go crazy and all that kind of stuff. I'm not going to lie to you. I'm not the biggest fan of sunshine. It's honestly, it's probably my least favorite Danny Boyle film. Mm. And I feel bad saying that because I, not everybody loves sunshine, but I have a couple of my friends who just love that film. Like absolutely love that film, Sir Lance. And obviously you do too. And look, it is very heady sci-fi, which can be really positive, but for, for whatever reason, it just never clicked with me. It, it just, it just didn't click with me, but you know what? That's okay because it's clicked with other people. Not everybody loves sunshine and I'm one of those, but it also has a very, very passionate fan base to which you are obviously one of those as well. So I'm glad you like it, man. I, I wish I liked it as much as you did because I really like Danny Boyle. All right, next up. Uh, Tom Weyenberg writes, Finally saw The Witcher. Dude, welcome to the party. Just in time for season two. Uh, I loved it. Did think exposition was either done badly or rushed in places. I got by with my knowledge of the books. But my brother got lost a lot. That said, I love the overall structure with the three timelines. I loved... Love, 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 love the way they did the timelines. Totally love the way they did the timelines. When when you as the audience finally realize what's been going on with the time structure, I'm like, holy crap, that was awesome. Listen, I've never read the books. I played the games. I've never read the books. And I was able to follow along. Like once my mind adjusted to the whole various time structure that it wasn't being told in a linear time-wise, it I was like, oh my God, I thought that was brilliant. So... Yeah, I never read the books and it actually worked for me, but I'm glad you were able to get caught up on it and uh, just in time for, well, not just in time for season two. We still have to wait a few months for season two, but I'm very, very excited for season two. All right, let's move on. Uh, where are we at here? Uh, Crimsonoid 4 writes, I kind of get what Rob means in regards to Black Widow. It's like in the 1980s when those Ewok movies came out. Sure, the hardcore Star Wars fans were interested, but for most of the mainstream movie-going public, the story ended with Return of the Jedi. I see. I disagree with that. I don't think that's a good analogy at all. I don't think that's a good analogy at all. And uh, Michael in the uh, in the live chat is saying, "Is this live?" Uh, yeah, this is live, Michael. This this is live. Um, anyway. I don't think that's so we were talking the other day about, you know, what caused the failure of Black Widow taking such a massive it had such a great opening weekend for the pandemic era for the pandemic era. It had a great opening weekend at 80 million. It set the record for all any movie post pandemic. It was a very, very strong opening weekend in this era. But then it took a 67 percent drop, the biggest drop any MCU movie has ever taken by 5%. Like it didn't just barely become the biggest drop. It was the biggest drop they've ever had. And it was significant. And it was, I mean, deadline wrote articles about it for themselves. The theater owners association, a variety even chimed in on it. It, it was, it's the Disney premium access strategy, a strategy that has been a dismal, awful, unmitigated failure. Mulan was a massive failure. Not not the movie as a whole. I the movie has has its merits, but its premium access release, it's that pay extra $30 to watch on Disney Plus, total disastrous failure. Then they did it again with Ryan the Last Dragon, total disastrous failure. Then they did it again with Cruella, total disastrous failure. And 
then they kind of wonder. Now, the, the first weekend numbers for the premium access of Black Widow wasn't all that bad. I mean, it was $60 million. Uh, hey, look, that's pretty good. So they bragged about that. They came out and said, hey, everybody made $60 million. You notice Disney never made any public statements about the second week and how many premium access purchases they got in the second week? Yeah, because it was abysmal. But so far overall, this has been a massive unmitigated failure. And they're not done testing it, nor should they be done testing it. They're the only, they've only got one film left that they've scheduled to do with the premium access, and that's Jungle Cruise. After that, they have no more planned. But I think in the future, they should do another six, seven, eight, nine, ten to get a really good sample size to see how well this premium access thing will actually work. I don't think four or five films is enough to really tell. I really don't. Um, so I think they're going to test it more in the future. We'll see how that goes. Uh, but Rob kind of thought the the issue was, and I really disagree with him on this. Rob thought the issue was, well, people just weren't that interested in Black Widow. If that were true, Black Widow wouldn't have had a bigger opening weekend than Fast 9 did. If it was true, and by the way, Marie Seifring uh, for, for some reason, who's awake with us at this hour, Marie Seifring sends in a super chat badge. Thank you, Marie. I appreciate that. So if the general idea was, well, you know, Black Widow had died in Endgame, so people weren't really interested. If that was the case, then it wouldn't have had a bigger opening weekend than Fast 9. That, see, that part of the logic to me just does not compute. If people just weren't interested in it, it wouldn't have had the biggest opening weekend post-pandemic even bigger than Fast 9. And by the way, the previous Fast and the Furious movie opened with $250 million. So you got to extrapolate that. So if during this pandemic era, Fast 9 makes 70, then you got to extrapolate that if it had not been for the pandemic and the theaters hadn't been closed all year, that Fast 9 probably at minimum would have opened at 200 million. If Fast 8 opened at 250, you got to figure at minimum this thing would have opened at that. But wait, a second, let me you know, let me double check that number. I'm not 100% about that. Hold on a second. Uh Fate of the Furious. I'm sitting here saying it's 250 million, but I should double check that to see what it actually is. The opening weekend. Sorry. You know what I had in my mind? It was 250 million budget. I'm glad I double checked this because something just went, it had a hundred million dollar opening weekend. Had a hundred million dollar opening weekend. It was Fast Eight, which was, you know, not the best movie. But so extrapolate that. So you got to figure in a non-pandemic era, you're probably minimum looking at Black Widow making over a hundred million dollars opening weekend. Clearly, people were interested. Clearly, people were interested. Had nothing to do with Endgame. Had nothing to do with, you know, whatever. People were interested. Also, I understand the argument that, you know, after Endgame, for a lot of people, that was the climax of the story. Okay, that's fine. But uh, what was the name of that movie? Far From Home. The Spider-Man movie Far From Home came out after Avengers Endgame. And it had a $92 million opening weekend. It had a $92 million opening weekend. Now, not only did it have a $92 million opening weekend, but its second weekend of release, it only had a 51% drop. So it had a comparable opening weekend after Endgame, after the big climax, had a similar opening weekend numbers, and only, but only dropped 51% on the second weekend. So I just don't feel... And I'm, I may be wrong about this. I totally could be wrong about this. I'm just saying that I really feel that this notion of the reason for the second weekend drop-off was lack of interest in the property, that makes no sense to me. Maybe that would make sense to me if Black Widow opened with like 50 million instead of 80 million. 
but it didn't. It opened, which kind of showed there was a lot of interest. But I don't know. Anyway, that's just kind of my take. By the way, Banana Apple sends in a super chat badge in the live chat. Thank you for that, Banana Apple. Appreciate that, man. Anyway, there's no definitive answer to this. I, I just look at the information and I think it makes it pretty clear as did Deadline, as did Variety, as did others, that it was Disney's disastrous, unmitigated failure of a premium access thing that really cut the legs out from under Black Widow. But maybe we'll find out that isn't the case. That's just kind of my perspective as a random speculative fan like everybody else. But that's my take on it. All right, next up. Uh, Where are we at here? We left off at the Black Widow. Now we're at William H. who writes... Um, do, do, do. and uh, a new foe is asking if this is pre-recorded. No, this isn't pre-recorded. This is actually live. I'm actually up this late. Okay, William H. writes, heard a theory that the sacred timeline is the prime timeline, but there are still other timelines. The other Kang versions don't attack because of the monster, Eliath. So when Nexus events happen in the prime, they are branches that are trying to reach other timelines. Oh, I don't buy into that. Uh, that already exist. So when Loki is pushed through the portal, Kang had already programmed the location, oh, I, don't buy, I don't buy that either, um, to another timeline where he never escaped, meaning the MCU timeline. Okay, again, here's the big problem with that. The big problem I have about that notion, because remember, Loki ends up back at the TVA, right? Only when he gets there, the, instead of statues of the timekeepers, there's a statue of Kang. And all of a sudden, B-15 and Mobius don't recognize him. So what a lot of people then assume is that, oh, that's an effect of an alternate timeline. Here's the problem. The TVA, oh, there's that damn remote again. The TVA does not exist within time. The TVA exists outside of time. Therefore, multiple timelines and everything wouldn't affect the TVA whatsoever. The very nature of reality had to have changed. Now in sci-fi, altering timelines and altering reality is a very thin, but a very distinct difference in sci-fi, right? So it looked to me like what happened with the death of the one Kang is that the very nature of reality itself had changed. Not only had all these different timelines spurted out, but the very nature of reality itself had changed. Now, again, we're going to have to see, um, we're going to have to see that next season to really figure out, they're going to have to explain to us what's going on, but maybe it's a timeline thing, but to me, it seems like more of a reality altering thing. Not sure. We'll have to go from there though. Uh, by the way, Will Joyner or Win Joyner, I should say, sends in a super chat badge in the live chat. Thank you, Win. I appreciate that, man. All right, next up. We got Jaron, the UFC guy, Morris, writes, over under 30% that at UFC 266, we will hear the biggest pop in UFC history or in UFC today. Why, you ask? That's the day that Nick Diaz returns and walks to the octagon. Thoughts and what are your thoughts on Islam's performance this Saturday? Surprised it took him to the fourth to win that fight, but this dude is a beast. He is Habib 2.0. Now, getting back to the Nick Diaz thing, um, the thing about Nick Diaz is he's very popular, but he's not getting the biggest pop. The reality is he's been out of the UFC. He's been out years, man, like years and years and years. I can't even remember. What was it? The Anderson Silva fight? Well, I, I, correct me if I'm wrong in the live chat, but I think the Anderson Silva fight was his last fight in the UFC. And that was forever ago. And while, so he, him and his brother are both very popular, but yeah, they don't get the pop that Conor McGregor gets. They don't get the pop, you know, it's, so will it be enthusiastic? Will it be big? Uh, yes, but uh, I, I really don't think it's going to be the biggest pop that we've had, but I'm looking forward to seeing Nick back in the ring. He's, he's still fighting a guy who's past his prime, but still very dangerous and Robbie Lawler. So we'll see how that goes. All right. Next up, uh, Diego writes, I went out and saw the Anthony Bourdain documentary on Friday night. I've had a number of people writing in about that who've been really liking it. Um, on Friday night. And to my surprise, the theater was completely sold out, loved his shows and his death hit me particularly hard. The movie was a really, was really great. And just thought I'd share RIP 
uh, Anthony Bourdain. Yeah, listen, I it was surprising to me. I, I don't know if there could have been another, the death of another celebrity chef, although Anthony Bourdain was so much more than that, obviously. But still, I don't know that any other celebrity chef of this era could have died that had the cultural impact that the death of Anthony Bourdain did. Um, I know, actually, it's funny. My wife and I were just talking about this the other day because Anne and her, I think her dad used to like watch a lot of the Anthony Bourdain stuff. So it's uh, it's 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 pretty cool. It's it's really cool, and I'm glad to hear that a lot of people are watching this documentary and enjoying it. I haven't seen it yet myself, but I am very interested in watching it. Thanks for sharing that, man. All right, Anton Riley writes, Here's an anniversary for you, John. Today marks the 10 years since Captain America, the first Avengers, came out. 2011 doesn't even feel like 10 years yet it is. And a matter of fact, uh, as of right now, so as of this recording, this moment is now 12.05 a.m. Los Angeles time. It is now July 22nd. Today, now that we're five minutes into it, today is the 10-year anniversary of the release of Captain America, The First Avenger. And it is amazing on two fronts. Number one, it's it's hard to imagine. It's been 10 years 10 years since that damn movie came out. It's unbelievable. But what's also really interesting when you think about that is how the MCU has evolved and changed over those 10 years. I mean, we've gone from having like one movie every year or year and a half to now having seven, eight, nine, ten 10 different properties coming out in a single year in 2021 and in 2022. I don't know if they'll continue that into 2023 because, you know, they won't have the backlog caused by COVID, but still look, look at the change there. That's massive, but it's not just a change in how many projects they make, you know, everything from the first Iron Man, the first Captain America, hell, even the first Thor, a movie about Asgardian gods, the Marvel Cinematic Universe always strived to be, while very, you know, lighthearted and also, you know, integrate a lot of humor and things like that. It was, it's, they still strive to have a groundedness to them, right? Sure, Thor was a god of Asgard, but here's the rules of how Thor and Mjolnir and all this kind of st- stuff works, and they kind of stayed within that. Sure, Steve Rogers got the super soldier serum that turned him into this, but he's still governed by the natural laws of this, 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 and this, and it's all kind of whatever. It, It was still very much grounded kind of storytelling. And look where we are today. Like not only after Doctor Strange and WandaVision and and, but now Loki and heading into, you know, multiverse of madness and all this kind of stuff. Like the, the MCU has evolved and changed so much in terms of how big they are, how many projects they put out, the nature of those projects. And it's like every single project they now put out is a different genre. We often talk about they they go from a 70s political style thriller to more of a traditional comedy and something like an Ant-Man to something like a straight up action film to something with a little bit of horror elements to something with heavy mystery elements. I mean, they're constantly changing it and changing gears and doing a lot. And it's amazing to think that in the 10 years, they've really changed that much. And by the way, Christopher uh, Hasselden sends in a super chat badge in the live chat. Thank you, Christopher. Appreciate that, man. Um it's it's really weird when you actually stop and think back, not just to that movie, Captain America, the First Avenger, but also think back to that era. You know, the comic book movie genre was not yet the biggest genre in the world. You know, it was becoming that thanks to the MCU with Iron Man, Thor, First Captain America. They, they were building the foundation of comic book movies being the most dominant force in the box office, but it wasn't there yet 10 years ago. And they have changed the game. They have really changed the game. And by the way, Captain America, the first Avenger, I believe is the third most underrated comic book movie of all time. Obviously, you guys know what I think the first guys in the live chat. Come on. You guys know what, according to me, therefore it is the truth. But what, according to me, is the most underrated comic book film of all time? Uh, Miss Chandler Bong is the first one to get it, uh, as did the comic doctor, Dwayne Fernandez-Rajan. You all guys got it. Man of Steel. 
Man of Steel is the most underrated comic book film of all time. The second most underrated comic book film of all time to me is the brilliant Kenneth Branagh's Thor, the first Thor movie. I think that movie is utterly brilliant, and I think it is massively, massively underrated. It really is. The third, though, most underrated comic book movie, I believe, is Captain America, the first Avenger. I actually remember me and Kyle Newman did a podcast once. Uh, I was a guest on one of his podcasts, and we discussed, we just, the whole topic was Captain America, the first Avenger. And that is a brutally underestimated and underappreciated comic book movie. That movie is great. Thematically, philosophically, everything, mytho- uh, you know, from a myth, uh, myth- uh, <laughs> mythology point of view. Sorry, guys, it's past midnight right now. I should be in bed. Um, that movie's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. And I think it's the third most. And really, when you think about it, man, how the MCU has changed and the the whole comic book genre has changed in the 10 years since that thing came out. So happy 10th anniversary to Captain America, the first Avenger, which, by the way, let me see if I you guys might have seen this before. I'm not 100 percent sure. Let me see if I can see this, because not long before the movie opened, not long before the movie opened. Captain America, actually just a couple of weeks, I think. I think it was only a couple of weeks before the opening of Captain America, the first Avenger. Uh, I, and probably many of you guys, were at Comic-Con in San Diego. And at Comic-Con in San Diego, um, they did a very first public screening of Captain America, the first Avenger. It was the first time they were ever showing it to a public audience And I got invited to go and be there, but they also got a hold of me and said, hey, while you're there, just so you know, we haven't told the public this yet. Chris Evans is going to be there. Do you want to interview Chris Evans at this first public screening of, uh, of, of this new Captain America? And I said, sure, I'd love to talk to Chris Evans. So this was us in San Diego, I guess, 10 years ago, maybe a week ago, maybe one or two weeks ago would have been the 10 year anniversary of, um, or this might've been just before comic. I can't remember the exact date anyway. Um, and we got to talk about it. This is he and I, this is when he and I were talking about, I told him one of my favorite movies that he ever did was the losers. That movie's great. That's another one. If you guys haven't seen the losers, you totally should. It's got, um, uh, who's the girl again that plays Gamora who I keep, uh, I keep forgetting. Who's the girl that plays Gamora. Come on, you guys. Um, in the, in the live chat, uh, I keep, Oh, Zoe Saldana. Thank you. Ash Banka is the first person to put in Zoe Saldana. It's got, uh, the comedian and, uh, the guy who played Negan in the walking dead. And he was John Winchester, uh, in thing. And I keep forgetting. He's got three names. What's that guy's name? I always forget. Even though he played John Winchester in supernatural Jeffrey Dean Morgan, Matt Linton was the first one to throw that in. So it had, um, Chris Evans had Zoe Saldana, had Jeffrey Dean Morgan, had um, Heimdall. Heimdall was in it. And I'll just see if you guys know who played Heimdall. Idris Elba, thank you, uh, Professor Wood. Idris uh, Elba was uh, not Alba, Elba. Uh, Idris Elba was the guy who played, uh, w- was in that as well. I'm trying to remember who else. Anyway, it's called The Losers. A lot of fun. Great movie. If you haven't seen it, you should go and check that out. Okay. Anyway, that's that. So, uh, yeah, happy 10th anniversary to Captain America, the first Avenger. Okay. Let's move on here next up. And by the way, we've had some super chat badges come in here from Gabriel, uh, Venegas who sends in a super chat badge. Thank you, Gabriel. Appreciate that. Peter Cunnington sends in a super chat badge and, um, and, uh, Louis, Louis sends in a super chat badge as well. Thank you guys. Appreciate that very much. All right, let's now move on to the next one. Next one comes to us from Carnell B who writes one of two Loki theories. Loki and Sylvie aren't variants. I don't know if I buy that already. Anyway, that's just another lie from Kang via the timekeepers. If Kang plotted their path, then everything happened as it should have up to the threshold. Um, 
uh, timekeepers. If Kang was the figurehead of the TVA, agents would be suspicious after the first of many Kang variants that would be pruned, especially since they're supposed to exist outside of the timeline. Creating the timekeepers was a necessity. Yeah, I don't know, Colonel. I, I don't know that I buy into either of those. I don't know if I buy into either of those. I I mean, first of all, no, I think absolutely everything that, that Morbius showed, all these, vari- these variants of Loki and stuff like that, listen, they're all variants. They're all variants. And so this Loki was definitely a variant. If Sylvie is indeed a Loki and Loki is a Loki, then they got to be variants. I mean, there's, there's just no way around that. Like, you can't have one... Uh, Christopher is saying, I can rarely catch you live, John Campia. This is really fun. I know because of the time difference around the world, not everybody can always watch the John Campia show live. So doing one this late, some people get to watch it live for the, for the first time in a while. Anyway. Um, so yeah, I mean, you can't even begin to suggest that Loki and Sylvie aren't variants. If they are both Loki, if they're both Lokis, then they both absolutely have to be. So I don't know. Listen, there are absolutely a hundred. Okay, and I think we are back up and running again. Sorry about that. There was a, a little bit of a uh, a little bit of a hiccup, but I think we got it all figured back out, and we're up and running again. Uh, anyway, yeah. So if they're both Loki's, they're both Loki's. Now there are still absolutely some big questions that need to be asked. There are still some absolute big questions that need to be addressed about certain details regarding you know time and Kang and his role in everything and Loki's. Absolutely, there's still questions, but. Just starting off from the premise that Loki and Sylvie themselves weren't actually variants, I think just the nature of them existing there kind of undermines that. But again, there are many questions to be answered, so we'll see where they go with that. All right, thanks for that, Cornell. Next up, Caleb writes, If you were to play the OG Star Wars trilogy with score and effects but no dialogue, what percent of the lines could you recite from heart, no lip reading? Over under 60%. How about you, Rob? Rob's obviously not here. Thanks, and bring on the filthy. Um, look, honestly, with, without exaggeration, I'm not going to say a hundred percent because I'm sure I'll miss a word here or there or something like that, but it's, it's not an exaggeration to say well over 95%, well over 95%. There's a reason why I am the greatest Star Wars trivia player in the history of Christian's movie trivia, there's a reason I, I beat Sam Witwer not once, but twice. Uh, oh, but in all seriousness, it's just that I'm a loser. I'm a total loser geek. Uh, I, I would probably, again, I'm not going to sit here and say hundred percent, but yeah, probably pretty easily. I, I could do 95%. I think 95% is probably a safe bet. But uh, that's just kind of my uh, my thing on that. All right. Thanks for asking, Caleb. Uh, and by the way, Sam Whitworth is a beast. Uh, next up, where do we go? Where do we go? Oh, we are at Kelly. And Kelly writes, Hello, John, Aaron, and Rob. Question of the day. John and everyone, I live in Kentucky. AMC theaters being one of them, uh, the locations of the AMC building is in dire need of remodeling, parking lot, etc. Why are they not maintaining that location? <laughs> Kelly, all due respect, how the fuck should I know? I have no idea. Look, but the reality, look, there's a lot of different things that go into that. Number one, AMC may not own the building. Now, not many, not a lot of people realize this, but the vast, vast, vast majority of AMC theaters, AMC doesn't actually own those buildings. For the vast majority of them, AMC leases those buildings and has rentals on them, but they don't own the buildings or the property that they're on. Uh, They have no right to build building structures. Now, again, I don't know the situation. Maybe your AMC is one of those... um, is one of those standalone ones. Maybe maybe your AMC in Kentucky is one where they actually own the building and it's their freestanding structure. That's possible. If that's the case, then it could just be maybe that AMC doesn't do enough business to justify them putting a lot of money into renovating it, or there could be a lot of other reasons. 
But again, without knowing the theater itself, because I don't live in Kentucky, without knowing the theater itself, it's really difficult for me to say why it's not. My best guess is, though, is because like the majority of AMC theaters, they are in a building that they don't actually own and they lease it and they don't own the property around it. That's my best guess. Maybe I would have a different answer if I actually knew the theater that uh, you were referencing. But I would say this, Kelly, uh, go to the theater, talk to the manager. If you ask to speak to one of the managers, assistant managers, say, hey, listen, I'm a patron here. I love coming to the theater. But, you know, I, I'm just wondering, as a customer of yours, why don't we see the upgrades and renovations being done here that are happening in other AMC theaters? Can you give me some information about that? And I'm sure they'd probably be happy to give you an answer. Anyway, I hope you find that help uh, helpful, Kelly. All right. Next up, uh, Caleb writes, did you see the teaser sizzle for Kurt Warner uh, posted on his Instagram for the biopic starring Zach Levi and Anna Paquin? If so, totally check it out. He's, uh, he's my favorite athlete. His story was made for Hollywood, and it looks like they're doing it justice. I have not. Uh, I am interested in this movie, though. I'm not going to lie to you. I'm, I'm interested in this movie. For those of you who don't know, Kurt Warner was... He's got an incredible story. He ended up being the quarterback of the Rams. Later went on, I believe he was the quarter. He went on to be, he finished his career with the Cardinals, I believe, as a quarterback of the Cardinals. But he was a guy who was in his 30s bagging groceries, if I remember correctly, and then got a call up to try out for the Rams, became their starting quarterback, and lit the NFL on fire. And actually, his the Rams team under him became known as the greatest show on turf. Uh, they were a dynamic, fantastic offense, and uh, they went on to win a Super Bowl. And it's, a, it's an incredible story. And uh, Zach Levi is starring in a film about Anna Paquin, who was rogue in the X-Men movies, and she was in True Blood. Uh, she's in there as well. So, no, I have not seen... Uh, this little sizzle, but I'm, I'm interested in the project. I am. I'm, I'm going to be curious to see how that turns out. All right. Next up, uh, Caleb writes also thoughts on Darabont slash this, uh, CAA creative artist agency settling their lawsuit with AMC for 200 million over walking dead profits. So happy to see creators getting what they deserve and hope studios learn lessons. Thanks. Well, Look, I, you guys know me. I'm not afraid to say the unpopular thing. I'm not afraid to say the unpopular thing. I'm going to say the unpopular thing. Most of the time, I don't think creators deserve, you know, if a movie makes a billion dollars, the creators should get 800 million of it. Like, I don't believe that. And I, this has always been my position right from the earliest days. I remember an article I wrote on this on the movie blog in the earliest days of me doing the movie blog. And it got a lot of backlash on it, but I still believe it's true. Even though a lot of people disagree and that's fine. We're all here to agree and disagree sometimes. But to me, the people who pay for something are the ones who deserve to reap the rewards. Sorry, that's how I feel about it. I feel about about that the way I feel about most things. If you're the ones who pay for it, you're the ones who deserve to reap the vast, vast, vast majority of the rewards. And that's why, like when I was with AMC and later when I was with Complex and Collider, I never begrudged Complex or Collider, even though I'm the one who created Movie Talk. And I'm the one who created that whole thing. When they were making deals that was bringing in significant revenue and all that kind of stuff, I never felt like I deserved a cut of that because I wasn't the one who was paying for the operation. I'm the one who created it. And, you know, to be fair, they compensated me. I, I made a good salary while I worked for those guys. I'm, I'm, I'll tell you straight up, when I worked... For AMC and later with Complex and Collider, I made over six figures a year. They they paid me well, but when like when certain big deals were made, I never felt like oh I should get a cut of that because I wasn't the one who was paying everybody's salary. I wasn't the one who was paying 
our our editors. I wasn't the one who was paying our writers. I wasn't the one paying for the building that we were in. I wasn't the one paying for the equipment that we had. I wasn't the one paying everybody's salaries. The company was. And if there's big windfalls to be had, I was good with the company getting the windfalls. See, I never left those places because they weren't cutting me in on the financial windfalls. That, that was never, I left because I was just getting tired of putting my blood, sweat, and tears into something that somebody else owned. I didn't begrudge them for owning it. Not at all. But I just realized I created this and I put in all my blood, sweat, and tears and, but I didn't pay for it. So I'm cool with that, but it's time for me to go and do something else. Something that I do pay for. So, you know, when we, when I have staff on here, whether it was fact checker, Jonathan, Ray, uh, Aaron or Kim or Robert Meyer Burnett and stuff like that, I pay for that. And that's only fair that I'd be the one to pay for it. So when it comes to the Frank Darabont situation with walking dead, it wasn't just a matter of, Hey, I'm one of the creators. I should get a big cut. I think there was more, um, tomfoolery that was going on where they literally did if if I remember the story correctly, and I might not be, because it's been a while since I've read on this, but I think they specifically did some shady things that deprived Darabont of what he was legally and contractually entitled to. And I think they specifically were trying to screw him over. See, I, I don't believe that, well, if you're one of the creators, if so, a show that you help create makes a huge amount of money, you deserve to get a big cut of that. I don't necessarily agree with that. As Robert Meyer Burnett always says, it's not about what you deserve. It's about what you you negotiate. But from what I understood, and I could be way wrong about this, from what I understood, AMC, and remember, the AMC, the television network, is not the same company as AMC, the movie theater. Still a lot of people think they're the same company. They are not. They're not in any way, shape, or form connected. They're totally different things. Anyway, from what I understood, AMC, the television network, did some shady stuff to withhold things that legally and contractually Frank Darabont was actually really entitled to. And if that's the case, and I'm not a thousand percent sure about that, if that is the case, then damn good on Frank Darabont for getting what he was entitled to. If somebody pulled some fast shit to try to swindle him out of what he was entitled to, then good on him for getting what he was entitled to. So, yeah, for, that was good to see. And I love Frank Darabont. I love that. I think that guy's just, just a treasure. All right. Did you know, I believe it was Frank Darabont. People in the live chat, correct me if I'm wrong. Frank Darabont was the first guy to write a script for Indiana Jones 4. Now, I've never read that script, but apparently he wrote a script for Indiana Jones 4. Steven Spielberg liked it. Harrison Ford liked it. But George Lucas didn't like it. And the agreement apparently was all three of them had to be on board. And so Lucas got his own story written and we ended up with Indiana Jones and the kingdom of the crystal skull. Please don't tell me how you really think George Lucas should come back to run star Wars again. I don't want to hear it. And I love, listen, I, I worship at the altar of George Lucas. I absolutely worship at the altar of George Lucas. I'm just saying, I'm just saying, but yeah, man, Frank Darabont, Shawshank redemption. I mean, come on, that dude's a treasure. That dude's an absolute treasure. Okay. Uh, where are we at now? Next up, we go on to, I think that was Caleb. Yeah. Uh, we're at Dan S. Who writes, Season two of The Wheel of Time is now filming. Amazon uh, recently announced a prime video panel for July 23rd at Comic-Con, or at least their virtual Comic-Con, uh, where showrunner Rafe uh, Judkins will speak. We may finally see a trailer then. I'm super hyped for this series, as the books are all-time greats. I... Uh, I, I, I look, I'm not going to lie. I'm not excited about it. I'm on, I'm honestly not excited about it. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not closed off to it. Not in the least. I'm not closed off to it at all. 
there's a lot of things that I, I wasn't excited about before they came out. It's like, ah, I'm not interested in that. But then it comes out and I'm like, whoa, I loved it. And maybe the Wheel of Time thing will be one of those. For whatever reason, I just don't have a good feeling about it. I Again, I can't quantify that. I totally can't quantify that. And I'm not trying to talk anybody else into not being excited about it. If you're excited about it, awesome. But for whatever reason, I'm just not there. I'm just not there. So uh, we'll have to see. Not really sure, but, you know, we'll, we'll, hopefully it's great, but I'm not going to lie to you and pretend that I'm cool and say, yeah, I can't wait for Wheel of Time. I, I'm going to say, I'm not looking forward to it, but when it comes, I'll give it a shot and hopefully it'll be amazing. All right, next up, uh, where we leave off. Simpygar writes, I'm very excited for the book of Boba Fett. He has been my favorite Star Wars character. I know you're not the biggest fan. I like Boba Fett very much. Uh, since I first saw him in Empire when I was a kid, I'm 31 now, and I love Tamora as Django. I really liked him in uh, Aquaman, too, as a matter of fact. Uh, so cool that he is back as Boba. Listen, it was a no-brainer, but it's really good that they did it. If you were going to have Boba Fett, you had to get Tamora back. You had to. He's a clone, after all. A specifically designed clone, nonetheless. But that's what he needs to look like. And he was great in uh, The Mandalorian. He was absolutely great in The Mandalorian. And when they did that end credit scene with the Book of Boba Fett coming, that was great. That when he goes into that to Jabba's throne room and he kills Bib Fortuna and says, coming, the book of Boba Fett, I was as excited as anybody else. I really was. And I'm really, really glad that he's back there as well. And by the way, Alex's movie corner sends in a super chat badge in the live chat. Thank you, Alex. Appreciate that, man, very much. All right, uh, let's move on here. Next up, we've got Daniel James Cole, who writes, hello, John and crew. Unfortunately, it's just me right now. I want to say thanks uh, for your genuine honesty in all the content. During one of the last uh, Loki discussions, you mentioned something about if Loki would travel back to the 80s and join the band Bon Jovi. I don't remember that. I, I, you're probably right. I just don't remember it. Call me crazy. Um, uh, I've been called worse. Look at the sim uh, at the similarly between the similarity between Loki and Alec John such. Uh, man, I'm not sure who that is. I'm going to guess he's one of the guys in Bon Jovi. Man, did my imaginations run wild with the scene of an 80s Loki and all that 80s hair and makeup as Bon Jovi's old bass guitarist keep up the great work. Man, I don't remember that part of the conversation, but I'll totally take your word for it. Listen, you know what we were just talking about how Captain America, the first Avenger, is now 10 years old? And it's like, man, I can't believe that was 10 years ago. Here's a feeling old moment for me. We were talking with a, a bunch of people. There's like seven or eight of us standing around. And in that circle was like this 19-year-old girl. 19. She's an adult. She's an adult. Not a preschooler. Not a child. She's an adult. And I cannot remember. You know what it was? I think somebody brought up for some reason... Uh, deadliest catch you know that show of the lobster fisherman stuff like that deadliest catch anyway th there's a bon jovi song is the theme song of that show right so that came up and then i think i mentioned oh the greatest bon jovi song of all time is cowboy i'm a cowboy on a steel horse i ride and i don't know maybe that is the one that they use on deadliest catch i can't remember but I'm wanted, wanted, dead or alive. I, I love that song. To me, that's the best Bon Jovi song. Dead or Alive is the best Bon Jovi song, in my opinion. But, but, as we talk about Bon Jovi and, and these songs, and, and we start batting around a couple of, a uh, couple of things, you know. And he used to work on the docks. Union's been on strike. He's down on his luck. It's tough. So come on. Living on a prayer, right? That's a pretty good one. Anyway, so as we're batting around a couple of Bon Jovi tunes, this 19-year-old girl 
God bless her ignorant little heart. Says, who's Bon Jovi? You know in movies, when something absolutely terrible happens, and then you hear that record scratch, and everything goes silent, like, and everybody's stunned, that's what happened. When this girl says, who's Bon Jovi? Scratch, record scratch. What the fuck did you just say? Who's Bon Jovi? Never heard of any of the songs that we were just humming out and all that kind of stuff. And yeah, when we hear about movies turning 20 or turning 30 or like Captain America turning 10, it was like, man, that was 10 years ago. And we all feel a little bit old. Oh my God. You have no idea what that really feels like until you hear a 19 year old girl say, who's Bon Jovi? Yeah, that, that, that one, that one made me feel a little bit old. That one, I'm not going to lie to you. That one made me feel a little bit old. Anyway, uh, let's keep going here. Shall we? Uh, next up, we got Ben Rayner who writes, Hey, John, and hope you're doing well. I am doing well, Ben. Thank you so much for asking. I was watching your companion video, and the topic of Dark Avengers came up, and you said, what would Baron Zemo do? Uh, Isn't it clear? He would do a dance-off against the opponents. LOL, bring on the filthy. Yeah, so what Ben is referring to is the other day, uh, somebody, you know, brought up, uh, we were talking about, could Valentina, a.k.a. Elaine, could Valentina be assembling like the dark Avengers and that they will be the big villains that the Avengers fight in Avengers five. And I was like, I don't really see that happening. I I don't really see that happening because that's not a challenge for the Avengers. You're going to go from like Loki with an, with a Thanos supplied army invading the earth to Ultron to Thanos to Walmart, Captain America and Yelena and Baron Zemo. What could these guys possibly do against Thor? What could these guys possibly do? against the Hulk. What could these guys possibly do against Dr. Strange? What could these guys possibly hope to do against Captain Marvel? What could these guys possibly hope to do? Like, you see what I'm saying? They say, well, I mean, what if, I don't know, like what if Red Hulk joins him? Well, I, I don't think Red Hulk is joined, but even then, that is a joke C-list bench team. That is a joke. C-list bench team. I mean, I was there a little bit more than that, but you don't go from Loki with an entire army, alien invasion army, to Ultron, to Thanos, to Baron Zemo, Walmart Captain America, and Black Widow's little sister. And I don't know, maybe that's exactly what they're going to do. Maybe that's exactly what they're going to do. But I just can't see it. I I just can't see it. But we'll see where they go with it. All right. We only got a couple of minutes left here, guys. I promised myself I would only go an hour tonight. All right. Thanos writes, I recently asked you what you thought about Feige versus the Russo brothers credit for their films. Since the screenwriters were the same on all four Russo MCU films, who do you give more credit to, the directing duo or the writing duo? Yeah, I I again just say Feige. Look, so yeah, somebody asked, it was probably Thanos wrote in and asked, who do I think deserves more credit for? Uh, And by the way, S-Beam sends in a super chat badge in the live chat. Thank you, S-Beam. Appreciate that, man. Um, Wrote in and asked, you know, when you look at, Captain America, Winter Soldier, Civil War, Infinity War, Endgame. Who gets more credit, Kevin Feige or the Russo brothers? Now, look, I love the Russo brothers. You guys know the Russo brothers 
have come to my studio on several occasions. They've been completely generous with their time. You know, when I had a specific event going on, they sent me, they, they sent me a personalized video message. Whenever I've run into them at premieres, they've always been very generous at the time to come over and talk and stuff like that. They are terrific. I love the Russo brothers. But if I'm going to try to be as objective as I can, the reality is that I was never a big fan of what the Russo did the Russos did before they worked with Kevin Feige. I mean, I, I really hate you, me and Dupree. <laughs> a lot of people forget they did you, me and Dupree, but anyway, there's that. Um, and to be frank, I have not really liked what they have done since the one they did with Chadwick Boseman in 20, I think it was called 21 bridges that I thought that was a poor movie. I thought Extraction, the one that they their production company was in charge of, they were the senior producers on it, they were in charge of that movie. Uh, the one they did with, um, uh, with uh, Chris Hemsworth had some terrific action scenes in it, but I, I honestly, I thought that was a pretty poor movie. Great action scenes, no doubt, especially that one car chase scene, fantastic. But I thought it was pretty bad. Cherry was a big disappointment. I, th- I thought Cherry was was quite bad. And so when you look at the MCU, what's the common denominator of all the films being excellent? Kevin Feige. And what have the Russos done without Kevin Feige? I suggest so far, so far, not a lot. Now that doesn't mean they won't crank out some amazing stuff in the coming years. I believe they will, but Right now, it seems to me that that the majority of that credit then needs to go to Kevin Feige, the guy who actually created this world, has guided the overall story the whole time, and has been there working very closely with all of his directors. Now, that may sound like I'm trying to shortchange the Russos, and I'm really not. I, I, just I'm really not trying to shortchange the Russos, or what a great job they absolutely did on those four films. I mean, Winter Soldier, so so great. Anyway. But once you answer that question, then it almost, to me, Thanos becomes moot to then talk about, well, then who's more responsible, um, the Russos or the writers? We've already really answered that question. Really, it's the most credit goes to Kevin Feige. Feige gets the lion's share of the credit because all of them were working under his direction. Which means if all four of those movies are crap, I also believe the lion's share of the blame should go to Kevin Feige. But... I don't know. That's just, again, you don't have to agree with me. And and there's some very, very good reasons not to agree with me. But you ask me, and that's just kind of my take on it right now. All right. Last question of the evening, guys. And then I'm going to have to wrap it up because I got to go to bed because I got to do a show in the morning. By the way, guys, I'm going to let you know. In the morning, tomorrow's John Campia show, which uh, starts about nine hours from now. Uh, It's a special one because we are going to have, number one, Aaron Cummings is going to be here. And we're also going to have Kimberly Curran. It's going to be the first time that we're going to have Kimberly Curran and Aaron Cummings on the show at the same time. Very excited about it. Uh, so yeah, I hope you guys will. Uh, I hope you guys will uh, write in, write in. I hope you guys will tune in and join us for that tomorrow. It's going to be a lot of fun. I'm really, really looking forward to that. Anyway, let's go to the final question of the evening. This one comes to us from Sam Weiser Gamgee, and Sam Weiser writes, "Hey guys." Do you think we will get a scene somewhere in the multiverse of madness where we see Shatner, Shatner, AKA Captain Kirk trapped in the middle of a planet screaming into his communicator, Kang Kang. For those of you who are not familiar with star Trek II: the wrath of Khan, there is a scene, an iconic scene where an abandoned William Shatner on this dead world yells into his communicator, Khan K H A N Khan. Khan and Sam Weiser saying Kang Kang. All right, Sam Weiser, I will uh, give you the uh, drum shot for that. There you go. I'll give you the drum shot for that. Uh, Anyway, guys, that will do it for this installment of the companion videos. 
thank you guys so much for being up. We did this one live late at night, had over 400 of you guys joining us, even though I gave you like two minutes notice before we launched it. Thank you guys for being here and being a part of this. A special thank you to all you guys who sent in the live comments and questions. Number one, because you give us great fun things to talk about. But number two, you support this channel as you do it. And all of us involved with the John Campus Show. Thank you guys so very, very much. For your support. Now, of course, there are more questions to come from Wakandan Forever, Wes Grant, Linus Knight, uh, and more and more and more. We're going to pick those up on the live questions part of the show tomorrow. So if you sent in one of these questions, you haven't seen it addressed yet. Like I said, we did fall behind because that one day that YouTube went out on us and we just couldn't even do any of them that day. So we have fallen a bit behind. But if you haven't heard yours get asked yet, tune in tomorrow. Hopefully we'll get around to it then. All right, guys, that will do it for me. Thanks a lot for being here, my friends. My name's John Campia. And until tomorrow, we're not even tomorrow anymore. Now it's just nine hours from now. Bye-bye. <laughs>